Hello, a very big hello, and welcome to the Truthific Mega Crossover Part 2. This time, it's going to be a little bit of a boys club. My guest and I are all lads, let's say. Less coincidentally, we're all moderns, or at least we all chose modern stories and not ancient ones. So a question for you, the listener, to bear in mind as you listen to my guests and I deal with wuxia, sci-fi and hi-pi might be something like, what has modernity done to literature? Or if you'll let me rephrase that, oh my god, what has modernity done to literature? Or if you'll let me rephrase it again, hmm, what has modernity done to literature? Um, By the way, I should just caveat and say, my guests for the episode aren't just my other split personalities. I do actually have other podcasters who are coming on. But anyway, the, the point still stands here. What, Where did all the bandits, Buddhists, and superpowered monkeys go in modern Chinese literature? Did they exit the physical plane and take up residence in the collective unconscious? Who took their place? Or what took their place? It's pretty heavy stuff, I think. So what me and my fellow podcasters will make of it all is yet to be seen, because first, we have the Truthific News. So the first news item is about Taiwan Year. So the Leeds Centre for New Chinese Writing, um, they do like a monthly uh, featured author, where they'll showcase like a little bio for the author and some of their work. And this year, I believe they're doing entirely Taiwanese authors. So although I'll be releasing this episode in March, I'll just tell you about the February author. Uh, it was Igo Yan Zheng. He's a science fiction writer from Taiwan. And there's a little excerpt of one of his pieces of writing up there uh, on the Lead Center website. There'll be a link to it in my show notes in the Truthific News section. Okay, next little news item. This is an article that Asymptote, I think that's how you say it, it's Asymptote Journal, so a journal for translated uh, literature, literature and translation, whatever you want to call it, uh, they put up an article by the translator Jeremy Tiang, so a, not a fairly recent guest on the show, um, uh, and he wrote an article called The World is Not Enough, which is basically kind of looking at turning around in his, in his proverbial hand the question, is world literature just a sort of spice rack for lazy Westerners, where um, publishers sort of package you something which is not uh, so, in quotes, foreign to be as completely incomprehensible, but not so familiar that you deal with it on your own terms? Sort of putting it in, I think he uses uh, the term the Goldilocks zone or something like that. So it's an interesting perspective, and it's something I kind of wonder about, whether whether I am always taking the stories I look at on the podcast on their own terms, or whether I am looking for some sort of uh, imagined Chineseness or something, and whether that is always a bad thing, or whether it is a bad thing which is somewhat unavoidable, or what. It's um, I think it, it can be a complicated question. I don't think this is black and white, and I think to uh, Jeremy's credit, his article doesn't present the question in this way. Um, I think it's he presents it as a slippery as it is, I think, if I've read it correctly. Okay, the next news item, uh, actually the next two news items, these are just um, Zoom talks that have been put on YouTube, because I keep missing these, um, the time zones are often wrong, or I have plans, and I'm not able to attend like as the event is going on, but you know, the magic of Zoom 
as I'm using it for the podcast, you can just record the stuff and put it online. So I found two very recently recorded uh, Chinese literature Zoom events, which are you can just watch them on YouTube for free. Um, really fantastic. I've not what sorry, I've not watched them myself, but they are um, sort of bookmarked, so to speak. So one is called Lost in Translation: What's the Problem with Chinese Literature in the West? And that has Diana Anqian, Nikki Harmon, and Eric Abrahamson. So uh, two of those people are former guests of the show. I think I'd put this event in the Trishific News before. Well, happy days. You can now just consume it online in your own time. Uh, the next one. So this uh, is also somewhat in my radar because it features an author who I whose work I might be doing an episode on on the show. Or even if I'm not, he might come up. He's a very big name in Taiwanese lit. Uh, now, the spellings are in like the sort of Wade Giles Taiwanese style. So, Pai Xian Young, Pai Xian Young, and Susan Chan Egan um, host, hosted an event called Reading the Story of the Stone, which is funny because on this episode, I've got uh, the two guys from the podcast rereading the stone. So, you know, if you're if you're interested in what they're doing, I'm sure you'll find something um, of interest in this event. All right, that's the end of the Trichific news, but we're not done yet because I have an advertisement for you guys. Um, friend of the podcast and former show guest, Jeremy Bai, aka Deathblade, who we had on to discuss the Wuxia author Gulong and his translation of Gulong Seven Killers. Um, so Jeremy Bai, Deathblade, has brought a novel out um, that you can buy um, you can order it for yourself. So he sponsored this episode of the show to do this. So let's let's um, let's hear a little bit about this book. It's called The Heretic Peacekeeper, and I have read only the intro for this book, but I think it looks really really interesting. Looking forward to reading it myself. It's um, it's a hybrid. The style of the book or the setting, the world he's built, is like a hybrid of cyberpunk. So think Blade Runner, Akira, and the Xianxia cultivation novel. For the world, from the world of uh, Chinese web fiction, I've done. Um, I've done. I've talked a lot about Xianxia when I was doing the Wuxia season, but if you're not familiar, Xianxia is sort of a spin-off or a sister genre to Wuxia in a way. But it's a lot more rather than being uh, inspired by kung fu, it's inspired by kind of a mixture of Chinese traditional. Um, I don't know what you'd call it. Sort of ideas in Chinese mythology or just the culture of like cultivating yourself as like a Taoist immortal. So extending your life, increasing your inner energy, going up to the mountains um, and all that. Um, but then combined with video, like sort of the video game logic of leveling up and becoming, reaching sort of insane power levels. So Xianxia is a really interesting sort of um, specific, well, a, a genre with a very specific sort of digital slash ancient Chinese origin. And here um Jeremy uh Jeremy by Deathblade has combined that with um like cyberpunk sci-fi vibes or a, a setting to create something really interesting. So I'm gonna read you guys the blurb of the book just so you get a sense of what I'm talking about. Cultivation is illegal. Immortals are hunted and executed. Anti-cultivation propaganda posters are plastered on every street corner. The counter-cultivation division investigates. The elite black corpses are sent in for the kill. None are spared. Mercy doesn't exist. But did the cultivators really bring the war of tribulation? Are they actually responsible for the heavenly curse? Are they truly the bloodthirsty psychopaths the government paints them to be? 
Wang Fan is a homicide detective who fights for justice and who believes like who believes that officers like himself are tasked with championing the rights of the common citizens. Then a seemingly routine case goes awry and he finds himself dragged into the darkness of the cultivation world. And when he realizes the black corpses have their sniper sniper rifles aimed at the back of his head, he has no choice. He has to fight the system to survive. But can he escape the most elite and technologically advanced troops the Sinotech Corporation sends at him? Does he dare to peel back the veil of lies and secrecy to uncover the truth? Do you dare take that journey with him? Find out in The Heretic Peacekeeper. So as you can probably tell, um, Deathblade's given us a sort of um, cyber future Chinese or Chinese-influenced sort of setting. So that's sort of going to be infused along with the Xianxia and the cyberpunk. So yeah, sounds pretty awesome if you ask me. Uh, if you want to get a copy of that for yourself, just search for The Heretic Peacekeeper online or there'll also be a link in the show notes that you can follow. So yeah, there's that. Now, on with the show, let's get to the interview. So I guess I'll introduce my show first. I'm Angus Stewart. I'm the host of the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. Probably most people listening already know it. Um, so like, long story short, it's about uh, translated fiction from, from China, funnily enough. And I am pretty new to the world of Chinese lit. I'm not like an academic or anything. Uh, my sort of background is um, the world of publishing. I've taken an interest in what the publishing of translated Chinese fiction looks like. And the podcast is a sort of a free way to, <laughs> to learn more um, quickly and talk to people. And it's, it's working out okay. So that's me. Um, anyone want to go next? Shall I volunteer someone? I, I guess we can go. Yeah. It's like, it's like being in class again, right? No one actually <laughs> wants to volunteer. Go for it, Lee. So, so my name is Lee Moore. I'm doing a PhD on, uh, in, in a Chinese department at the University of Oregon. Uh, my PhD is on Chinese museums, but I have a background in Chinese literature. We started this, our, our podcast, the Chinese Literature Podcast. 2016? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. we, started, we started recording in 2015, but we didn't air Whew. until 2016. Some of those old episodes are yeah. rough. Um, anyways, uh, so I'm, I have an, a background in academia. I'm finishing up the PhD sometime in the next year, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, yeah. And, and I started the pod, I started, we started our podcast so that we, we were already drinking beer and talking about Chinese literature. And we said, why don't we just put a mic in front of this and go? <laughs> and we did, and we're still doing it and people are still listening, which is surprising sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I'm Rob Moore. We have the last name that we're not related. Um, <laughs> there's lots more markers than that to indicate why we're not related, but I'm also getting a PhD at the university of Oregon. I'm in comparative literature uh if you've ever been in academia you know that national languages and comparative literature have a long-standing uh rivalry uh so we have a lot of fun with that i write about french literature translated into chinese right at the turn of the 19th century but lee and i both one of the major reasons we, we stuck with the podcast is because we've both been out of academia a lot i lived in china for almost 11 years uh as an English teacher, I got a master's degree there, just kind of did stuff. And so we really enjoy being able to share Chinese literature with people who haven't studied it, kind of think it's interesting, but don't know much about it. So this is a really fun platform for us to share stuff we really like with a general audience. All right, 
Cool. Um, can I ask a question? Are your last names spelt the same way? Are they both Moore with an E? Because I can only see one. They are spelled exactly the same way. Mm. Interesting. Very confusing for people. <laughs> and we're both, we both look somewhat similar. I don't know. Rob has, Rob has way more hair. I'm much better looking, but which yeah. is confusing for people. <laughs> Wasn't trying to accuse you of heinous wrongdoing. <laughs> Just was curious. <laughs> that's what that's what I heard, dude. That's what I heard. And it's okay. I mean, it's a perfectly it's a perfectly acceptable accusation. I certainly have murdered several people. That's for a different podcast. Um, who wants to go next? Uh, maybe I'll go next. Is that all right? So, greetings, everybody. Uh, my name is Kevin Wilson, one of the co-hosts for Rereading the Stone, uh, a a podcast on historical Chinese literature, philosophy, and poetry, hopefully. Uh, we're currently working on uh, the uh, Qing dynastic classic, uh, Dream of the Red Chamber, Hong Lo Meng. Uh, and we're going chapter by chapter, having a lot of fun with that. I'm also working on a dissertation related to uh, Hong Lo Meng and um, like uh, Tang uh, poetry, kind of the inner relations between these two forms. So uh, we are very poetry pilled uh Fun. and we also deal with philosophy and uh it's yeah it's just having a lot of fun um it's pretty laid back uh and we're also kind of yeah this is like i guess it's it's like a academic adjacent uh, endeavor you know we, we really believe in just a, a democratic approach to uh knowledge production hell yeah william has kevin done your job for you or do you want to introduce yourself as well Oh, absolutely. Uh, he's. Um, I think I'm going to have more to say when it comes to the story we're covering. So I was like, you talk about the pod. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yifan, uh, then. Uh, so it's my turn. Um, yeah. Hi, um, I'm Yifan, uh, Zhang Yifan. Uh, I'm actually Chinese, uh, recording here in London. I have a podcast called Culture Potato. It's in Mandarin. And it's not actually a literature podcast. We talk yeah. about films, TVs. Uh, we talk about uh, books also, but, you know, once or twice a month. Um, uh, we, we have, interestingly, like, during lockdown, we have transitioned from TV to books. I don't know why. Yeah. So now we do way more books. Yeah. Oh, that's handy. Um, I should probably mention uh, for uh, listeners of my podcast, we've had one of your, I don't know if she's a member or just a regular. Oh, she, yeah, she is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've had a, one of your hosts on, Gigi Chang, who's, is it her translation you've chosen? Uh, yes, yes. Excellent. Gigi has chosen her own translation. <laughs> <laughs> so she's here sort yeah. of in a disembodied Fun. form. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. So it's not just an all guys show then. <laughs> Sounds like a Pusong Ling story already. <laughs> mm, right. That's true. So we're, we're doing the exact same sort of format we did for the classics episode. We've all chosen a story although in this case it's a it's a story per podcast so we got william and kevin have got one between them uh, rob and lee have got one between them does anyone is anyone itching to do their story first i guess we can start since john we're the the author we've chosen is the great john eiling who lee has set forward as his pick for the greatest chinese writer of the 20th century yep uh, she's not my favorite, but I am a, still a huge fan. The story we've chose is called Sealed Off, which would you agree, Lee, that's her best story? Do you have one you prefer? Uh, I think it's her best short story. Okay. Uh, it's also one of the best short stories I've ever read in any language. It is an entire story that takes place on a 
what do we call it? A trolley? Not really a trolley. Um, yeah, town it's a, car, a trolley. A trolley, trolley car, basically, yeah. in Shanghai in the 1940s. Japanese occupied Shanghai. And um, there is there is disturbance in the city. The trolley car comes to a stop. And the entire story focuses on what the people are doing in the car. And there are some absolutely fascinating exchanges. Uh, there is a man who convinces himself that he's desperately in love with a woman in the car. And then that goes nowhere. <laughs> It's an entirely psychological piece. It's an entire psychological piece. It follows the thoughts and feelings of people stuck on a trolley car in war-torn Shanghai and does it with incredible subtlety. There's uh, The detail that still sticks in my mind from reading the story is everyone on the subway is reading something. One guy on the subway looks around, sees everyone reading, and says, man, I'm the only one here who has nothing to read. Then he looks down <laughs> in his lap. And realizes that his steamed manto bun is wrapped in a newspaper. <laughs> and he unwraps it and reads his manto bun. Which I just find that such a fantastic detail. And Zhang Ailing's literature is full of this kind of stuff. What Can I ask, I mean, what did y'all think of it? Had y'all read this story before? With that, I'm going to start the 10-minute timer. Um, <laughs> I, I had not, I'd only read a few um, Alien Zhang stories before reading this one. And I think this might be my favorite one so far. Uh, it, yeah, I thought it was just on its own merits as a piece of uh, literature, never mind trying to enjoy it through any like China Watcher framework or anything. I thought it was mm. really strong. Um, but I, given that we've only got 10 minutes, I won't go into it anymore. I'll just pass the the proverbial conch to whoever else wants to say something. <laughs> Hiya, um, Will here. I had read it before in university um, and then completely forgot about it. Uh, and then when I picked it up again, I was like, <laughs> hey, I know this story. I, I had a question for you guys, if um, if that's okay. You see this whole this whole scene. In your view, is this supposed to be like a dream or like some kind of like um, surreal, otherworldly moment? Or is it is it something that actually like is supposed to be a reflection of the real world, hmm. like as far as you're concerned? So I I think it's probably real. Um, so I, I personally feel like it's real, um, and that's because partially she's rep, uh, she, she is to a certain degree referencing um, a story by Shi Jitsun, which is written about 10 years before called One Rainy Night in Shanghai, um, and that is more, that's sort of the space in between dream and reality, but it is something that's definitely real. I think it's just so psychological and so we're going into the brains of folks in in Zhang Ailing's story that it kind of has this dreamy quality to it but it it is still for me I think supposed to be real but I think it's it's interesting that you asked that question because I don't have any way of proving that that which is to my mind the strength one of the big strengths of the story is um I, I definitely think there's grounds for reading it as a dream or as a fantasy because you have a closed an enclosed space. It's cut off from the rest of the world. Everything that happens in there is effectively forgotten or replaced just after it's finished. Uh, what what is so powerful in John Eileen's fiction in this story in particular, though, is that she doesn't draw that firm line. There's room to read it as fantasy or as a dream sequence, and then there's room to read it as pure reality. The fact that the two are so closely related is one of the one of these moments of fracture that happen in a war zone, I, I say that as though I know what that's like, that I've read about anyway, that that makes it that makes it so such a powerful 
fictional sort of thread. I think about Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut and how he never really lets you know for sure if you're reading a pure made-up sci-fi story or he's actually saying that this guy's jumping back and forth in time, right? William, one thing I, I I think is interesting to ask is what is the, like in terms of whether or not this is a dream or a fantasy is what is the meaning of the title, Feng Suo, sealed off? Um, you know, what is being sealed off? Is this entirely within the head of one of the single tram riders or someone else dreaming about this tram? Um, the city is clearly sealed off because uh, it's Shanghai in wartime, and so everything shuts down. But at the narrative, the narrator moves from the head of one person to the, the head of another person, and there's just all these kind of questions as to, to where the boundaries are drawn in yeah. terms of whose mind we're in. I'm going to jump in here because I have a, a I, like I'm a pretty aware that you could, it's set up so you can read it any way you like, but I have like a preferred reading and I have a, right. a line in the text that I can use as evidence to cite. Um, Go for it. So it's near the start before we've met the characters and it says, at least in English translation, gradually the street grew quiet too, not a complete silence, but voices turned blurry like the soft rustling of a marsh grass pillow heard in a dream. This, the huge shambling city dozing in the sun, its head resting heavily on people, people's shoulders, its drool slipping slowly down their shirts, an inconceivably enormous weight pressing down on everyone. So like, I guess there's two ways to read that. It's a metaphor that kind of blends the city together with all the sleepy people in it, or it's a fairly literal description of some sort of weird collective dream onset happening. And not that I'm trying to force every piece of literature I read to make sense or to apply to our pandemic situation, but so many people have said time feels weird now that we are all sealed off. So that's what I got out of the story, aside from the observations of people's behavior and the amazing minute details like the letters printed onto the, the mantles. I love that. That, that was definitely an observation I had as well, Angus. Um, time moves in a very weird way in the, in the story. You know, it, it races by or it stops still, you know, like it, it's either moving very fast or not at all. And yeah, the, the, the image of the, the newspaper printed onto the bun is because it's printed backwards. It's kind of like, it becomes kind of the text becomes somehow kind of like meaningless or, or like cryptic in a way. And that was very kind of dreamlike to mm. me as well, I suppose. Well, and you know, to bring um, that detail into our, our core modern pandemic era, the idea of, I have to do something. There's nothing to do. I should do something. I'm going to read a piece of bread. It, just about anyone in the pandemic has had an experience like that. There's nothing to do. I guess I'll, I don't know, I'll change the clock on my microwave, I suppose. You know, like some version of that. There's this thing that reminds me of people sitting on subway trains or buses looking at their phones as a, de as a default um, that relates to what you're saying. So I'll read a, there's a small paragraph. I'll just quote. While Lou read his newspaper, the others did likewise. People who had newspapers read newspapers. Those who didn't have newspapers read receipts or rules and regulations or business cards. People who were stuck without a single scrap of printed matter read shop signs along the street. They simply, they simply had to fill this terrifying emptiness. Otherwise, their brains might start working. Thinking is painful business and just sounds to me like a smartphone addiction. Heck yeah, I love that passage. Gosh, he's brilliant. 
it's also really a metaphor. I mean, the the whole story is a metaphor about reading too, and and the act of reading, and and the sort of the the way the mind flits from one character to the other, like the narrative flits from one character to the other, and these questions about whether or not a mind, like how how we actually engage with those characters. Uh, we got. Know, one quarter of our 10 minutes left. Uh, Kevin or Yifan, do you, do you guys have any observations? Um, I actually I had the same question as William. So uh, my reading was that um, this is an imagined scene. Um, it's very detailed. And towards the end of the story, it also moved to the couples um, that the man's household, um, they talked about, you know, that couldn't possibly have been observed by, by the narrator. Hmm. Um, right. Um, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed the story. Thanks for picking this. And I haven't read much by um, Charlene, except there's another piece. I think she wrote in Hong Kong during also the Japanese occupation. That yep. I think she wandered off mm-hmm. to some um, food, food. Love in a fallen city. Yeah, f- um, not not that one. I think it might be a diary. Like she talks oh. about how she goes off to have fun, just to have girly fun, to go to restaurants that she used to love, and. And that also just it rings so true that you don't have to bear all this burden the whole time, right? Um, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, the other thing is you mentioned the title, and I thought just for a joke, this could be called a streetcar named Desire. That that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. Really, yeah, we, <laughs> totally. we didn't get into like the sexual or erotic component of it, but. That's something this one has that I guess another one of our stories today has. So maybe the, yeah. n- the next natural choice would be Shanghai Foxtrot. Yeah. We've still got a minute left for this one if anyone's got any hot takes left. I was just, uh, I'm really loving hearing this conversation of dreams and uh, this kind of like a dreams as being a self-enclosed symbolic space. Uh, at the same time, I'm thinking a lot about my own experience in, in subways, you know, in New York. And you have the advertisements and you kind of like, you can't turn them off effectively. Uh, You have to process them. It's this kind of um, this almost coercive medium. Uh, And so I'm imagining the, uh, the wrapping of the, uh, of the bun has a similar kind of effect where it's, it really is difficult to, uh, to leave the uh, symbolic space. And the fact that even in our dreams, we're, uh, enmeshed in symbolism and, and in like, you know, uh, systems of desire. Uh, it's uh, really profound, but also uh, unnerving, I think. And my last little hot take, and I know we don't have much time left, but I was going to jump off of that and say it's fascinating that if this is a dream and this is a dream sequence, it's fascinating that the dream sequence is so close to reality, mm. right? It's She dreams something that anyone could experience anywhere, which once again just blurs those lines, and that's what makes, for me, makes the story so powerful, is that for sure, yeah. she says, this could be a dream, it could be reality, but really, how would you differentiate between the two? Which is a very Hong Lomong kind of question. Indeed. <laughs> I think in a dream, oh, actually, no, sorry, forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell us all your... your um, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, no dreams, no dreams, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah. Should should we turn to Shanghai Foxtrot now? Let's do it, yeah. Okay, cool. So I thought I'd start with just a brief bit of info about the author. So the author is Mu Shiying, uh, and he is almost a contemporary of Zhang Ailing, but a little bit before her, maybe five to ten years or so. He was part of a group of 
young writers um, in Republican China mm. called the New Sensationalists, so Xin Gan Jia Pai. And unlike a lot of other writers at the time, they weren't kind of overtly political in their outlook. Um, actually, others in that group included, um, I think he mentioned... Shi uh, Is it Shi mm. Yeah, yeah. So he was another one of the, the same group. So he, he came from a, a wealthy family, but they kind of lost it all when he was still young. He came of age in, yeah, as I said, Republican China. Um, by many accounts, he was a, a handsome guy, very kind of dashing and charming, a great dancer, um, and a, a frequent um, womanizer. And yeah, in a world that, you know, was shaking off the kind of old forms of imperial and traditional China um, and embracing kind of new art forms and new kind of sexual relations. Anyway, he... Um, he was assassinated in 1940, um, having gone to work for the collaborationist government of Wang Jingwei. Wang Jingwei. Yeah. Um, during the, the Japanese occupation of uh, China. Um, anyway, so, so in some ways, you can kind of see his life as kind of like mirroring the Shanghai of the time. So kind of flourishing brilliantly for a short period and then kind of being snuffed out suddenly. So the story, Shanghai Foxtrot, is, um, it, I suppose it's quite unconventional as a short story. Uh, it's more a kind of a series of snapshots or vignettes more than it is um, a coherent kind of plot. Um, it's showing kind of various sides of Shanghai in the, in the 1930s, in the, in the jazz age. So you have first, um, a man is murdered by three gangsters um, on the outskirts of town. Um, and then we see a wealthy middle-aged man um, return home to his young wife, who takes some of his money and then goes out for like a night on the town in the dance halls with this man's son. And it's made explicit that the, the wife, who's not the mother of the son, and the son are having an affair. Or they're in this kind of strange situation where both father and son are having sex with the same woman. It's, it's all a little bit kind of seedy. Um, then we see some construction workers on a building site, and one of them is crushed by a beam uh, and fatally wounded. Um, next, we see the, the wealthy man, the father, going to play mahjong, and then he uh, visits a prostitute. Uh, next, we see a poor woman trying to pimp her daughter to a young man uh, in return to food. Uh, in return for food. And finally, we see, I think, a, a sailor, having taken a, a rickshaw ride, um, runs off without paying. And so we get these, this kind of, it's kind of cinematic, it's a kind of blur, um, and it's very focused on this mixture of different, different sensations, you know, um, sights and sounds and kind of feelings all intermingled in, a, in this sort of jumble, you know? So, so it's quite a kind of modern story, I guess, um, both in terms of content and, and form. And I guess, you know, it's named Shanghai Foxtrot. Foxtrot is a kind of a dance of the era um it's a kind of rather graceful dance for two people um set to to jazz music um and there's this kind of repetitive rhythm to it and that repetitive rhythm is reflected in the style of the story which has repetitive elements and has kind of rhythmical elements um but that rhythm is very much like a modern rhythm you know like it's the sound of um you know a train on the tracks or it's you know one of the new cars driving down the street. It's it's that sort of that sort of rhythm. Um, mechanized. Yeah, absolutely mechanized. Um, and 
<laughs> Maybe also like sensuous. Uh, you know, the most famous Foxtrot song is probably the theme from the Pink Panther. Uh, I, I was joking with Will beforehand that anytime you hear on the upbeat, you hear like a snapping. That's probably a, uh, a Foxtrot uh, kind of ditty. Um, and so, it, yeah, it has this mechanized rhythm, but it is like sort of seductive. And, and I think we see that in this piece a little bit. So, so y'all are all dancing around this question of sexuality, which Angus, you connected our story, the story that we suggested to, to this story through that realm of sexuality. I was kind of wondering, what do y'all think Musha Ying is trying to do with sexuality? I'll just read one line here. Uh, Onto a street lined with, le- uh, with legs of white painted trees, legs of telephone poles, all still life legs review like heavily powdered thighs of young women intersecting and extending white painted legs in formation. So this kind of comparison of those trees painted white as if they are legs. And then we see women who have these kind of fleshy uh, pale legs and the comparison and him the the narrator seeing legs everywhere and seeing sex everywhere it it almost seems like the masculine equivalent to Zhang Ailing's sort of the sensuousness in in that story of of it's just like a man who's seeing sex everywhere his 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 kind of sex I have an answer but if anyone wants to go first I, I mean I was just gonna say yeah I absolutely agree it's um it's like in the in every aspect of the city and like in the modern city, you know, in the, I mean, he sees it in, um, it's like lampposts, you know, which we kind of take, I guess, for like completely for granted, they're basically invisible. But at the time, like new electric, electric streetlights, they're very much like a symbol of modernity. And here, yeah, he, he associates them with, with being a, like sexually symbolic like the the legs of dancers as you said but there's another bit where he's talking about the crossing gates where like a road crosses a railway and they have these flashing lights and he sees those flashing lights again as like you know looking somehow like you know like painted lips or like you know like wearing kind of like yeah. earrings that kind of thing and so in in the symbols of modernity he sees this new like sexual liberation um and I think they do go together, you know, like with the technological modernity, you have a um, like a relaxing. It's a of... sexual revolution, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, when I was reading the story and trying to think about it and rereading it, um, it made me think of various um, mo- other like modernist things I've seen and read. Um, and I just I have a mental association of between the Shanghai of that time and modernism not so much of my own experiences of living there, but and when I had Paul French on the show, he was talking a lot about one reason he loves the Shanghai, the culture of Shanghai in this period is he likes modernism, like abstracted things. Um, the, yeah, the machine and man blending together. So yeah, I was, I was thinking of literary modernist stuff I've read, but also just the film Metropolis, the weird, I mean, almost like crash by gg ballard thing of it seems like the author wants to i don't know to be crude have sex with a machine like and maybe there's something from that era in there that it's hard for us to get our head around heads around today but like this sort of i don't know abstraction and craziness of 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 that era that was manifesting in movies literature maybe music too 
I think was it Lee earlier mentioned sexual? Oh, sorry. Um, maybe it was Lee who mentioned sexual revolution, and I, to me, it's more like the sexualization of objects. I'm drawing from my own experience moving from China to the UK, you know, many years ago during high school, and I felt that over here everything is a lot more sexualized, um, just in people's mind compared to Chinese kids back then in the late 90s. And, and I think Shanghai in this time, during this time, was, it, was in a, it, it was this international city and for a lot of Chinese people, it's the first generation. You know, they are, it, it's more, it's less, I guess, it's not sexual revolution as in it's like a, with the leftist agenda, but rather it's just more about desire and and then on that note, I'm not sure if you didn't tell me um, the the gender of the author, I would have guessed it's written by a by a woman. So even that mm. masculine gaze at the lamppost or trees, I I don't know. Um, yeah, and to me it didn't strike me as it. I, I don't hmm. know. I don't know how you guys think. Kind of, I kind of got the feeling it was written by just a horny guy, but. Yeah, like a teenager, <laughs> okay. or yeah, yeah, a young, a young guy, definitely. But that's maybe just—I don't necessarily think that's there in the text. That might just be me inserting that as a starting point, and then I can't see anything else. I, I, I definitely felt like it was a horny guy uh, writing it too. Um, like, and and mm-hmm. I mean everything that we discussed about Mu Shuying's right. yeah. biography suggests that's what he was, right? Well, and I'm curious, too, um, because I'm a complete jazz nerd. And when you read this in English, it it sounds a lot like some of the literature in the U.S. inspired by jazz, specifically beat poetry like Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. This attempt to channel the rhythms of jazz into literature. Now, we only had access to the English translation. I've never read the Chinese, so maybe maybe one of you can speak to this, but... um, there, there are a lot of interesting things that happen when you take seriously that this is meant to be styled after jazz, specifically some racial components as well. Um, that the rhythms of the music are were meant to be liberating, right? As soon as you introduce improvisation, every instrument can take a theme and do whatever what what they will, uh, take it any direction they want. Pretty much everything is is open. And for especially African American musicians in the twenties and thirties, this was this is incredibly empowering. So, in Shanghai, in this era, particularly, I mean, even in, in Chinese literature in general, there's there's lots of interesting lines drawn between uh, sort of marginalized peoples in other countries and um, the Chinese under the Japanese, the Chinese suffering from the, the West during the Opium Wars, and some of the early occupations in the 20th century. So I'm curious if any of you saw any of that in there, or are we looking more of the, the, the sort of the sexualized yep. city angle? I got the feeling there was some like sexual or just cultural politics between the white foreigners present in the story and the Chinese people. But as, as to anything else, I don't know. I wasn't seeing it. Hmm. No, I didn't even get that. I, I did dig out the, the Chinese version the the thing that that I noticed the most is how many English words were present in the Chinese text. Yeah. Yes. 
and they were bolded in the translation yeah. so you could still see when you're reading yeah, English. Yeah, exactly. And that, um, so there was this sense that this, he's trying to make a point and um, of characterizing these uh, westernized, very modern Shanghai rich people. And, and there was maybe some moral judgments on them as well. Mm. Again, you know, that goes with, with what I said earlier. It didn't feel like sexually liberating. Mm. It more, it's like a moral decline. At least when, when you read it in Chinese, yeah. I was going to say, I think that it's, there was no rules which said which words had to be in English. The author specifically chose which ones were going to be the foreign words. And a lot of it was the more sort of risque or mm-hmm. imported stuff. So, yeah. I yeah, like Gigolo, for example, was one <laughs> mm, of yeah. <laughs> um, Ivan, I was just going to say I really like agree with the point about... Um, so I don't know necessarily whether the author is making a moral judgment, but I do think that intentionally or not, the story does reveal the kind of hollowness yeah. in the whole in the Shanghai of the time, right? Like, I mean, I think it must be intentional yeah. because it's kind of the story is bookended by this phrase, Shanghai, a heaven built upon a hell. Yeah. Um, and there's a sense very much that it depicts poverty, but only really as a backdrop. Yeah. So you have the the death of the construction worker, you have the the word pimp, her daughter-in-law, for food, and you have this rickshaw driver who gets ripped off at the end. Uh, so you have the kind of glitz and glamour of the lifestyle that they're living. But what does it really amount to? It's just essentially rich people going to some fancy parties. And the cost of all of that is death and squalor yeah. and deprivation for, for like countless, you know, thousands or millions of people. Yeah, so it, it feels like Gotham City or um, it's a sin city, that kind of <laughs> feel, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say it's so hollow that lines have to be repeated. You kind of feel like the offer is almost padding the thing in, in, in a way you could you could do a slightly pretentious interpretation and say that the repetition of like the dancing or the legs is shutting out like the actual reality of the city, apart from the brief glimpses we see. Like if 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 the if the world they're living in is a world where half the lines are just things you've already read and it's someone flirting for the exact same chat up line again and again and again. And yeah, that's a sort of a superficial world. That's, that's an interesting point for me. The repetition I think spoke to um, more like the, the jazz rhythm. Um, but that was just my own, that was my own interpretation. You know, like in a song you'll have, you'll have repeat. That's how I read yeah. it too. That's, that's why I brought in the jazz angle. Mm. I hear jazz when I read this. And and I, I mean, there are some repetitive like like in the Chinese there's a couple of like onomatopoeic elements there's like a da 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 kind of sound in places which to me very much like speaks to yeah like a a jazz rhythm or like a, a musical quality to it. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Well, in the repetition as well, you know, in any in any good jazz song, there's a repetition of a theme. Whenever a, a, the solo the soloist trades over, there's a moment when one of the instruments repeats whatever the theme grounds the song. And, and then I, they move on. I think we have to also remember that from 1949 into 1979, this and this this particular piece and all pieces from this period were condemned uh, as amoral by the like during the PRC. And this author wasn't read, and Shanghai itself was 
considered this amoral space that was that was literally during the Cultural Revolution depopulated. Not not completely, obviously, but um, you know, like Shanghai became the realm of. So y- you can read it as a kind of moral condemna- condemnation. I, th- I think that's a totally valid reading. Um, but I think there's also this kind of celebration of that uh, immorality uh, in the same way that maybe like a Jinping Mei celebrates all of this sex while simultaneously condemning it. Um, I, I don't think that I don't think that it's an either or kind of thing. I think you can say, yes, this is definitely condemning some of the emptiness of this world. But I mean, Mu Shiying himself, he was ser- I mean, he was serving a government that no one liked, and he was assassinated for for doing so. He was he was a womanizer, uh, writing a story that has a lot of, uh, you know, objectifying women. I think I think that he, I think that it's it's hard uh, for me at least personally. It's hard to say that this story is completely condemning the city and this lifestyle. I think I think maybe he's having regrets at the same time that he is enjoying himself. Um, yeah. Speaking that, of banning and censoring things, we've run quite far over our 10 minutes, so I'm going to um, ban this conversation and take us to the next story. Um, <laughs> we've got our two genre fictions next, um, one set in the past, one set in the future. So Nice. I don't know. I, I don't think any either of them necessarily connect very well with the last two, but I don't know. Yifan, do you want to go first? Um, sure. So uh, my story is from chapter one of... Oh, it's so well. Let's try again. So it's from the legends of the Condor heroes. This is a wuxia um, genre fiction, uh, one of the one of the most famous pieces by Louis Cha or Jin Yong. Um, so Louis Cha or is his is the author's name. Um, a little bit about um, the author. He's very interesting because I ha- I I am a journalist by you know before before I took up podcasting. Uh, he's a very res- he was a very respected newspaper man in, in Hong Kong and started a uh, uh, Ming Pao, which still exists. Uh, but under him, it was kind of he started as a leftist writer and became an independent. Started writing wuxia fiction. So wuxia is a bit like a fantasy um, martial arts fiction. And so Louis Cha. He, Jin Yong, he creates his own Marvel's universe of heroes and martial arts and moves and all that. Um, in this one, it's probably in volume two, chapter one. Um, this short story is, in this short story, we have a bunch of men beating up a girl, basically, in a, in a palace. Um, and the, the girl is the, um, the, one of the main characters, prota- protagonist, Lotus Huang. Um, I think, or Lotus One. I'm not sure how that's organized. Huang. It's Huang in the books. Okay. So she was somehow caught by six six men uh, of varying age. And they were, she has, they were fighting each other out for some reason. You don't, we don't know just from this one chapter. And she managed to defeat three of them, uh, kind of cunningly got her way, like had a draw with, a fourth person, and then escaped while fighting um, the, fi- a fi- the fifth person. Um, what I like about this one is it's a, it's a brilliant introduction to Wuxia. I, 
uh, also Jingyong's writing, it, you get all the wacky names of all these fighters. Um, you get a uh, young adult love story, uh, flirting, a tremendous amount of flirting, uh, some risque b- bits about this. One of, the, one of the men, like he's got the handsome looking one's got 20 concubines uh, coming with him on this trip. And you also have so many elements of surprise. You know, she won by both wisdom, cunning, and by secret weapon towards the very, la- very, very last fight. Um, yeah, so I think this story is freely available on the publisher's site. It would give you a good taster of, uh, of what uh, Jingyong's novels are like. All right, I'm going to start the clock. Uh, I've got a question to start. Um, Yifan, what was your first exposure to Legend of the Condor Heroes? Because I imagine it's almost completely opposite from mine because of our different backgrounds. I have no exposure. This is the first piece. All right. So you'd imagine Jingyong oh, is... Oh, so I was wrong. Yeah, I, the, I've, I read one novel by Jingyong, Lu Dingji, uh, The Deer and the Cauldron, I think, in English. That's right. what's yep. called. And it's a very atypical one. So I understood... So Jingyong is a bit like Marvel, even if you don't live, you, don't, you haven't read them, but you kind of know the characters. You've, you've probably watched a film or some TV series along the way. Um, so I feel like I know these characters, but I haven't read any of them. Um, they are mostly fantasy uh, genre fiction, but the one I read is more historical, realist. Um, you see a lot of Qing Dynasty social scenes in that novel. I'm not saying that's better. It just happened to be the one I read. Mm. Um, yeah, so th- th- this is the first time I actually read anything coming out of Legends of the Condor Heroes. Yeah. Well, follow-up question. What do you think of it? Um, I can see it's genre fiction, um, that the, the, the dialogue sometimes is cringing, but it's probably <laughs> uh, by design. Um, Jingyong wrote a lot of these on the side um, while he's proofreading or waiting for something to happen. So for him, it's, it was entertainment and happened to be something he's, he was very good at. Um, I'm not sure he put into that much planning and meticulous writing in it. Um, purely as I was re- doing my research before this, this book underwent three editions and a lot of it was to correct inconsistencies and continuity, you know, issues. So, um, yeah, so he, he probably wrote it um, freestyle, yeah. And he's writing it serialized in his paper, right? It, yes, uh, yes. For this one, the first edition was serialized in someone else's paper. Uh, when Mingpao was established... Oh, in someone else's. Um, yeah, it was in a, a com- uh, Xiangang Shangbao, um, but you, you're right that when Ming Pao w- was first started, he's, he was you know, trying to attract audience by serializing his own writing in it. Well, I had a question following on that, actually. Um, you know, Lee and I were talking about um, a completely different franchise, the, the Wolf Warrior films before this, and we were talking about any, any sort of genre piece, whether it's science fiction, action, martial arts. One of the thrills for a reader is seeing something very, very old just being done in a new way. So any sort of martial arts story you read is going to have elements that people have been hearing for years and years. So when you read this story, 
do you see do you, when you read it do you say see anything that makes you go oh that's from this thing or oh i remember seeing this in the following other story that i've read do you see any parallels in older stories um not really you know what um when people remake uh, Jin Yong's films, they always try to bring it up to date and then having boy bands people to take part in it. And I, I remember watching <laughs> an interview with Jin Yong. He, he didn't like those, you know, the modern remakes. He likes people to be serious, um, to mm. be faithful to his text. But that's not to say his text was serious. I think that sort of playfulness you see in Lotus Huan, the flirtiness, that probably existed in you know in all societies so i wouldn't necessarily think that's something modern um i'm not sure if i'm i'm actually answering your questions um i i had a yeah. question Ivan, jumping off of that so your podcast you you deal with both literature and film right yeah and plays sometimes yeah. and play so I, when i read this story i really felt like uh, the I, I, I recalled the scene in, scene in King Hu's A Touch of Zen um, and I, I forget the Chinese name of that film but it's like the, the, the like best one of the best wuxia films ever and, and um, I also recalled a scene from Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon where yeah. Jin uh, fights off a large number of men. How much is there this di like? How much are are not necessarily films that are directly remaking Jin Yong's work, but even other wuxia films? How much are they drawing off of Jin Yong? How much is he contributing to the wuxia film novel genre? Um, Jin Yong, he was a playwright as well, and he worked for film studios. Um, I think. When people in Hong Kong first made, um, made adopted his uh, novels into TV and films, he probably had a very direct input. And those spread around the Chinese-speaking world through VHS and VCDs. And I think the impact we see in films, in more modern films, probably came from those um, TV and old films. Um, and they, everyone read Jing Yong. Um, I, I was only going to, yeah, maybe mention Mie Yin Yang. Um, it's a film. I don't know if any 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 of you watched Hou Xiaoxian's, the Taiwanese um, director. Oh, uh, is it English name The Assassin? Yes. Or is this, yes. Yeah, I've yes. Seen that. It's like yep. almost a silent film, and mm. I think that's a very different uh, atmosphere and a very different yeah. wuxia. And some people say that that's somehow more Chinese, um, I mean, mm. it's more art house film. And so at least I think it's worth comparing the, the, the two vibes. And in Chinese text, I think Lao She also wrote a short story about, um, about a wuxia master who happened to be the last of his, in his line. And many people begged him to teach them to, to pass on his, um, his Kung Fu. Um, but after much thinking, he, he, he didn't want to. He wanted all his learning to die with him because you know China is entering a new age and the world is is very different. And that's a very sad one. And and that's also a very different take from Jin Yong. Jin Yong is playful and 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 probably more fun to read. Yeah. 
The other classic uh, wuxia offer I did on uh, my podcast when I did wuxia season was Gulong. And that's like a good example of another guy who helped invent the modern genre, but in a style that wouldn't really look anything like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's not as flamboyant. It's more just like snarky. It's like a Joss Whedon film or or, or like a something something less verbose where people say some snarky lines and then one one hit kills the other like a clint eastwood uh western almost i my wife read all of them i uh all of jing yong and she told me that jing yong and gulong the the readers and they are like marvel and dc or or, (laughs) yeah they don't like each other (laughs) Mm. and the the gulong readers think themselves they think they're better i can kind of see their point of view (laughs) I don't know who I'd want to hang out with, though. Maybe the Jin Yong fans. Yeah, but I think so because yeah, I married one, and she <laughs> and asked, "So, did you ever try any Gulong novels?" And she said she read one, didn't like it. Mm. It's it's funny you mentioned uh, Angus Gulong um, because I was doing a bit of reading about Jin Yong and like other modern wuxia writers, and as far as I understand, there's kind of like those two, and then a third, uh, Liang Yusheng, who's like another. Uh. He's older. Yeah. The tripod, they call it. Is he? But from my reading, for each of those three names is like a pseudonym. Um, and I haven't always seen Chinese writers using like uh, an alien, uh, an alias or pseudonym when, when writing. Do you know, is this a thing that's specific to like the wuxia genre that, that authors pick a, a particular name for writing that? Or is this ha- kind of happens to be kind of coincidence? I think lots of people use pseudonyms, like Mao Dun, Lao She, Lu Xun. all of these. Are, yeah. So I suppose that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I just I wondered if it was something particular about about Wu Xia that, you know. I guess it's a philosophical question. What's the difference between a pseudonym, where you're deliberately kind of concealing your identity, like Robert Galbraith and J.K. Rowling, and a pen name, which is not hiding your identity, but is making some kind of an artistic statement? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, having worked in a newspaper and magazines a lot, sometimes practically, you know, like it's just to make make it seem that you have more authors than there are. <laughs> yeah. so, nice. I think if someone is starting a newspaper, you know, like Junior uh, might write half the paper. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a very prolific Scottish author called Ian Banks, um, and he wrote both uh, science fiction and kind of for want of a better word, just kind of general Literary. fiction, like non, non, non-genre, like non, like not with a specific genre or theme. Gritty, uh, and, realist, miserable stuff usually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but his sci-fi stuff is always under the suit, always under the the pen name, I suppose, Ian M. Banks, whereas oh, the other yeah. stuff is just Ian Banks, which is which is like a very minor distinction, I suppose. But I guess it's his way of saying he was a just bit of FYI, a bit of a know, troll. Like, that guy. Do you know when he? When he was diagnosed with um, terminal cancer, he asked his long-term partner. He he finally proposed to her. He said, "Like, will you be my widow?" Like, wow, <laughs> that's that guy's sense of humor. Yeah, if you've read his science fiction, there's a lot of that going through there as well. Right, that's the ten minutes for that one up. So I guess it's appropriately it's sci-fi time. It's um, <laughs> nice. the story I've chosen. Thank you. <laughs> well, it wasn't planned, and I hope the listeners believe us. We didn't plan that. Um, so I've chosen Han Song, uh, a Chinese sci-fi writer, I guess one of, we were talking about like there being foundational 
wuxia writers. He's one of a sort of a, a name list of Chinese sci-fi writers of his generation. I think it's him, so Han Song, Liu Cixin, and uh, Wang Jing Kang, Kang, I think, are the guys who are usually named together. And I chose, I read this one first in Ken Liu's second uh, sci-fi anthology, Broken Stars. I think it's one of the earlier stories in, in there. Um, and Han Song is one of the authors. Actually, I think every almost every author who was in his first anthology, Invisible Planets, also featured in um, in Broken Stars. Han Song was one of them. And if I remember correctly, uh, Han Song only had one story in Invisible Planets, uh, which I liked. So I was really pleased to see he had, I think, two in Broken Stars. And this one was one of them. And it's sort of, I don't know, one of my favorite Chinese short stories, probably my favorite Chinese sci-fi story. And that's, um, it's sort of my my niche really, because the thing I did in tandem with launching this podcast was doing a master's thesis on uh, the translation of Chinese sci-fi into English and, and the publishing. And Han Song, I find him really interesting because he doesn't do sort of space opera sci-fi like Liu Cixin and he doesn't really do fantasy um, inflected stuff like some of the younger uh, I think Chinese sci-fi writers do it's more sort of I don't know um, dark and satirical or allegorical you often feel like he's um he's either trying to sideways sort of criticize society or just the universe in general. So that's why I like him. And anyway, in, in this story, there's probably a few ways you can read it, but you can tell there's some kind of um, something you're supposed to be reading between the lines. So we start off in New York City and this is, it immediately gets weird because you're introduced to someone or something called the Cosmic Observer. And it's never really explained who that is. It kind of made me wonder if this is from a larger collection of stories or something. But anyway, this person or thing called the Cosmic Observer Observer meets uh, J.D. Salinger, the author himself. So we immediately know there's some kind of alternate history thing going on. And J.D. Salinger is uh, homeless. So the Cosmic Observer treats him to some chicken nuggets at McDonald's. And Salinger tells him kind of the story of his downfall. So we learn that um, the Cosmic Observer's arrival created some kind of a rupture in time or causality, which allowed the People's Democratic Republic of North Korea to conquer America. And they, they move in, they take over the country, and um, they, it turns out that Salinger was sort of a literary hero in, in North Korea because he's it, the official, I guess, it's implied anyway, the official interpretation of his stories is that he's revealing the horrible innards of American capitalism. So he must be a great writer. Um, so the North Korean invaders, they're trying to build a utopia in America and they want him to be the sort of, I don't know, the great literary figure of the new country. So they show up to his house, but he's already, as he did in real history, made himself a recluse hiding from fame. And that creates sort of an impasse where these people who have idolized him can't get to him. They turn on him. He ends up being banned and then is kind of thrown out, thrown out of society, just in a way like the, the narrator or the main character in where he becomes a, what's the word, a hermit or a recluse or an outcast, a lot like 
Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye. So yeah, um, I could go on about more about what, why I find this story so weird, and yet also kind of direct. And there's a, there's a there's a word I'm looking for, like meaty, as well as strange and hard to grasp at the same time. But yeah, I'll, I'll hand it over to you guys and start the timer if anyone has a thought or a question. Hey, Angus. So I, I definitely agree with you. There's something about this story that's both kind of intentionally weird, but also like you're clearly supposed to read through the lines. There's some sort of allegory being presented here. I couldn't figure out what that allegory was, and I was really curious as to what you and the other folks thought the allegory, like how do, how do we, like what is the framework we even have to interpret this? I have an answer, but I'll let everyone else jump in first if they want. I have a vague feeling that China is the real victim here, at you know, but I'm <gasps> not sure how. <laughs> I, I felt that, yeah, some of the ways he describes the North Koreans read like a parody of some of the ways I've seen nas- state media or very nationalistic Chinese friends kind of talk about China. Um, there's a sort of a tendency to describe the national characteristics of people, be it the Americans or the Koreans or the Chinese. And I felt either Han Song really likes stereotypes or he's poking fun at the way people use them. Like we're told at the end, uh, the cosmic observer is actually Chinese and therefore he's constrained by laws of physics and can only observe history. And it's like, well, your nationality doesn't affect, determine how physics affect you. Is this some kind of a joke? (laughs) Uh, what is Han Song trying to say? But just in general, the way that um, the North Korean army or people have been given a very strange interpretation of Catcher in the Rye, that it's a critique of capitalism, which I, don't, I mean, I've never read it, but I'm pretty sure it's not. And so the system has basically just wrongly idealized this author. And because the system can't cope with their ideas not describing reality, they just ruin the author's life. And there's the bit where they've, they can't get him out of the house. So they try to incorporate him into the system and bring him into the North Korean League of Writers. And that doesn't seem so different for how some of the post-cultural revolution Chinese writers are now part of the, the system, the Writers League mm. in China. So yeah, that's, that's my really basic interpretation. Well, I got to bring in some of my science nerddom here, but, uh, the, the idea of the cosmic observer has has its clear roots in quantum physics in general, specifically with the, the this notion that a subatomic particle, like an electron, specifically an electron, uh, is both a wave and a particle until it's observed. So until it is observed, it has a position, but until it's observed, it, it can be all places at once. And so Hansong is clearly playing with this idea that the moment something is observed it changes whatever it was, but until it's observed, it's completely in flux. And so it's an interesting way to position this because one of the suggestions is that J.D. Salinger himself, literature in general, is entirely up to the observer. Like it doesn't have any any merit or being itself until the moment it's observed and brought into a culture. Uh, of course, he's, he's really taking this to the extreme and saying not only is the literature that way, but the people who write the literature that way and and all down the line. And so there's a scientific angle, but I mean, there's, there's, it is, it's, there's a lot of this stuff uh, working all through this, but you know, the, the question that I had was why, why JD Salinger? 
Uh, If you're looking for anti-capitalist or even perceived anti-capitalist American writers, there's a lot of them from Jack London up up. Why Salinger? I have an answer. So Han Song is himself kind of a strange figure. He's he's not like the other Chinese sci-fi writers who I think are, I don't know, like Liu Cixin works in a, or held an honorary position in the, factory or power plant he, a power plant i think he worked in others i guess right. just work as writers yeah 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 hansong works in oh no why am i forgetting the name now it's a news agency that also has bookshops xinhua, xinhua. yeah xinhua i'm pretty sure it's xinhua, mm-hmm. yeah, xinhua. he's in mm-hmm. so he's working sort of inside the the chinese news system let's say but he is also writing this stuff that a lot of it is almost dissident fiction i think just the cover of sci-fi lets him have his sort of critique and every photo you see of him or a lot of the photos you see of him he's in his office and a lot of the writing he's put out that i've seen in translation anyway is pretty dark and just seems to like we did one on the podcast where what is it it's called the fundamental nature of the universe and the kind of fun literary ideas that the fundamental na- nature of the universe is ennui or Chinese word uh, Chuan, I think so like he seems to have like despair for reality like built deep into him so and I I've, again I've not read Catcher in the Rye but it just seems to take a negative view of like being alive in some ways but um, politics doesn't always want to take especially maybe the, like communist politics of the 20th century is so burningly optimistic that any critique of reality must just be a critique of the evil capitalists so that's my interpretation hmm. uh, my my kind of throwaway comment was uh any uh like piece of literature that imagines uh jd salinger uh being forced to eat chicken nuggets is good literature in my book yep um, i'd have to agree with that there, there's absolutely no way he would enjoy that <laughs> um I'm sure he'd be worried. He'd be talking about how the chickens, you know, like phony. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you if you've read Catcher in the Rye, <laughs> it's it's kind of insufferable at times. Yep. It's just it's just a, a, a teenage or like a young a young man just talking constantly about everything's fake. <laughs> everything's <laughs> fake, it's, man. It's an emo album uh, in print. Yes, yes, and uh, it's 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 worth reading. I, I I'm not sure if it uh, deserves yeah. its like canonical status. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it, this is sort of, I think, uh, a useful, if at times, bewildering intervention. True story. My dad gave me that book when I was a teenager. Told me, this is great literature, son. You should read it. And I've got 10, 15 pages in. It's like, it's lame. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what, what I find funny about it is that, like, maybe Han Song is kind of, like, slightly playing with that or joking with that. Because, uh, I mean... I forget who it was that assassinated John Lennon, but he Sirhan, didn't Sirhan, he yeah. cite the Catcher in the Rye as he like did, yes. one of his, yes, you know, and like, and I mean, like, there's a this is a bit lowbrow, I suppose, but there's like a South Park episode where they all read it because they're like, God, this book must be amazing, and they're like, this is there weren't yeah. even any swear words in it. This is rubbish, and like, yeah, I think it's it's status as. It's like reading Naked Lunch and being. Uh, it's like reading Naked Lunch and being disappointed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think his status is like, uh, yeah, exactly. Like canonically, like countercultural um, is perhaps slightly kind of overblown, and like, and maybe his point about it, you know, this like being perceived by the North Koreans as like laying bare, like the 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 like 
corrupt or like rotten, fetid heart of capitalism is um, is maybe part of the joke. I, I, um, but it's also, I mean, my... <laughs> I, at least one of the ways I read it is it's also a commentary on how, I mean, as a writer, Han Song has to be saying, hey, this is how badly readers screw up everything I'm trying to say. Right. Like, isn't that kind of like it's about hermeneutics and interpretation and and the the way that that we as readers completely miss what the author is going for? I mean, that the, the suggestion that that uh, J.D. or that Salinger is uh, that is this anti-capitalist author is. I mean, it's so firmly believed in in North Korea as as constructed in this story that it it kind of borders on. Like, a, I mean, it, it has to be a playful poke at, at the the reader themselves. Well, and the, the fact that it starts off with chicken nuggets. I mean, if if <laughs> if what you're trying to suggest is, you know, this whole catch in the rye thing really is this sort of very poorly written teen angst thing. If you were going to make fun of that, you'd take Holden Caulfield out for chicken nuggets, which is sort of this canonical kid's lunch, right? right. Like, not only is it not deep, it's the kind of it's the kind of novel a kid would find deep, and, and, right? And to, so to extend uh-huh. that a little bit more, yeah. I mean, this is itself kind of like chicken nuggets, which is, I mean, like you can't point to the nugget on the chicken, right? Like it's all just kind of ground up and deep fried. I mean, this is this is North Korea, this is China, this is U.S. American literature, all kind of ground up, deep fried together, as if it's something really delicious, but actually it's. And and, and, an he's, snack. and because he's the one making it, he knows exactly what it is <laughs> and is watching us eat it, which is hilarious. Gosh. There was a, a separate point which I wanted to talk about, which is like the conceit of the story is that the North Koreans have invented something called the quantum reambiguator. Oh, yeah. Right. And this is why it's come to pass that North Korea has invaded not just North America, but they've conquered mm. the whole world, I think, yep. in the story. And like in Chinese, quantum reambiguator is shamadol kei fa shou so that anything can happen. Machine uh, um, weapon. That's great. Anything can happen. Weapon, basically. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, uh, which I think is quite creatively translated as quantum reambiguator. So yeah. hats off to Ken Liu for that. Ken Liu's Ken Liu's good at yeah. inventing words, but it sometimes <laughs> makes me wonder. Um, although I think yeah. it's a sign of a good translator, he does that. Like, what is it? sort of concealing in the original Chinese and there you go it sort of sort of did conceal what yeah. Han Son mm. did there. but like I, I like that as the he's a writer right he, he, this is fiction he could he can write literally anything but he feels this need to explain um how it could possibly how this like impossibly ridiculous thing could come to pass that North Korea could conquer America um and he does it through this like kind of deus ex machina type like um you know um, oh well, they invented something and it made it possible. Therefore, you know, like um, a thing that makes everything possible. It, exactly, and it's like, well, it's fiction. Anything is possible, you know. Um, yeah, that, that's why I like him as a sci-fi writer. He's he's doing sort of, he's not adhering to hard sci-fi. It's, it's you know, like he has a book uh, which is not available in English, but I've read a plot summary of it. It's called Red Star Over America, where um, China hasn't conquered America, but China is ascendant. America is a um, burning trash heap. So couldn't possibly relate that to current events at all. But um, this visitor goes there and he sees a country that isn't just collapsing, but is a far, thoroughly like bizarre, surreal place. There are these creatures called Kennedy birds that 
we're in like it's a reference to the kennedys right it's weird it's that's like great. there's no pretense that it's not um founded on science and yet it's clearly recognizably science fiction is that a, a um a, a, like an homage to edgar snow's red star of china sure. the title gotta be i think is yeah, yeah. gotta be yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Hanson's story also touches on a nerve that, you know, China, uh, that North Korea is a much more fundamentalist communist country. And, you know, China has given up being fundamentalist. And what if communism or the Bible, or what if Marx was right? You know, like, then you, you, you lose the opportunity yeah. <laughs> to, to read. Yeah, you, you have given up truth. I remember. I paid a visit not into North Korea, but to Dandong, the Chinese um, town on the other side of the Yalu River. And relating that story to Chinese friends, one of the, they'd say lots of things, but one thing that di different people would, would say, and I would hear multiple times was, you know, you might think that place is incredibly strange, but really it's not so different from China X number of mm -hmm. decades ago. <laughs> yeah, it was like, a, yeah, hadn't thought of that while reading... Um, uh, this story but yeah I, I can see what you mean it's maybe a dig at the past rather than yeah and stereotypes yeah. about countries yeah. it's a dig at just about everything <laughs> mm. yeah i don't get the feeling han song's a happy guy no right that's the 10 minutes for that story up um we've been going not massively long did anyone uh really want to say anything that they've not had a chance to say Angus, thank you for organizing this. This is fun. This is a lot of fun, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, good work. Good to have you all um, all in one place. I'm planning for the next episode to do like a 50th episode of my podcast party. Um, I don't think there's any way I can possibly get everyone on because of time zones and stuff. But if you want to do the same thing, but even more silly, we, you're all invited. Yay. I'm, I'm all about yeah. silly. <laughs> well, I could tell that from the... Uh, Maybe, I, I forget which one of you did it, but the, the chicken nuggets analysis, that's peaks of silly I've... <laughs> Never underestimate the importance of chicken nuggets, my friends. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I am from Georgia, the, the poultry capital of the world, so... And you grew up going to Chick-fil-A camp. That's a different that's story. That's true, though. yeah. That's a totally different story. My wife also is a meat inspector, that's so... That's true. And she's a vegan, so we're going down the rabbit trail. You know. All true. All true. Beautiful. I came and I was hungry and you gave me chicken and I came and I was thirsty and you gave me chicken. That Bible verse <laughs> yep. has been slaughtered and, and put up mistranslated. Yeah. <laughs> to a lot of people in that neck of the woods adopt chickens because my mom recently got some, well, this year and they're like rescue chickens from a, I think here it's an egg place rather than a slaughterhouse. They don't tend to come out of the slaughterhouse. Not here. Well, out out here in Oregon, I would say yes. Um, I see a lot of it, but in Georgia, not as much. No, um, just because I think everybody knows, uh, literally how. Well, I mean, like the, there's this kind of l association of chickens with lowness, um, at least in modern in kind of modern Georgia. But but yeah, here in Oregon, where we're at now, uh, it's very much associated with a sort of trendy kind of. Postmodern, a lot of urban farms. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. Postmodern nuggets. Yeah. Um, yeah, there we go. I, I, which we read a story about postmodern chicken nuggets. We did. I have a question. So uh, I'm, I'm curious. Who, re who, who are your listeners? 
Um, are they Chinese students or, uh, I mean, students studying Chinese related subjects or? Yeah, this was something I was really curious about too when I started the podcast because I didn't necessarily know who the listeners were going to be. I think the main thing I can say is it's a bit of a niche. I don't know if you guys have had a similar experience. So like the ultimate goal is to get guests on who have nothing to do, who are new or yeah, who are just book readers, literature enjoyers or something. But the reality is I get a lot of China, well, a lot of translators, China uh, watchers, for lack of a better word. And yeah, so, but the actual listeners, I would say, yeah, there's uh, there's more Chinese people than I expected, be they people living in the PRC using VPNs or diaspora people or Taiwanese people or Singaporeans or whatever. And some of them are studying like literature abroad or they're studying Chinese literature wherever. That is one contingent. Um, there is quite a lot of translators who listen, um, although a lot of them are just former guests of the show, so I don't know if that counts. Um, <laughs> and then there's there's um, people a bit more like myself, people who have maybe lived in China or for some reason or other, even if they don't speak, like if they don't have much better than taxi Chinese or restaurant Chinese, they like reading the stuff in translation or they like sometimes it's people who like reading literature and translation in general or it might be East Asian literature and translation in general. That's another contingent Maybe a small contingent is Chinese language learners as well. And it's niche enough that I've just described all the, the groups really. Okay, cool. Oh, okay. Um, I, I was gonna ask um, how, like when, do you just email folks and see if they'll come on? How do you approach them? Oh, uh, a lot of it is Twitter. Um, email sometimes as, as well. I am doing well enough, I don't like to, took my own horn too much i have had a few publishers Hmm? i said toot it (laughs) yeah um toot it aggressively i have had a few publishers who want promotion for their books they'll so they'll send me the review copy or whatever that's starting to happen but yeah a lot of it is just aggressively dming people and well not aggressive but dming someone on twitter or some other social media i got a really big boost when I went down to, uh, um, I got invited by this university department in Leeds. They did a, a, what was it, genre fiction symposium. So I met, it was, so it was um, all about wuxia and sci-fi basically. So I met one, um, I met a bunch of students from the department, one of whom was looking at reception of the uh, the new Jin Yong translation and I would have I would have brought it up if our ten minutes had lasted longer, but her whole focus ended up basically being on the naming of the characters in the translation, because some people liked the wacky names or how they were rendered, others didn't. But anyway, I'm I'm really getting those names are like um, password generated, like password. They're good passwords. <laughs> Nobody's going to get rid of them. Yeah, some of them are very. Like H- Hector Shah, where did Hector come from? What is that in the original? Yeah, I wonder if it's from 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 the uh, these Greek Trojan War Hector. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, um, I met a bunch of academics there at this thing, and um, Xiaojia and Chen Fan, two actual Chinese sci-fi authors, and that was, I think, the that oh, sort yeah. of opened a lot of doors. I was going to say, I do think it's pretty interesting focusing on the names of like the minor characters um, in in works of fiction. Like one of the things that 
we look at a fair bit on the pod, me and Kevin, is um, the names of all of the maid servants in Honglomong because they have these mm. like really fascinating names. Um, um, like a lot of them are named after flowers, a lot of them are named after jewelry, and a lot of them have names that relate to this character Xia, uh, which mm-hmm. which Kevin in particular is super interested in. Yeah, so we got the like the the sunset sky. And so we were kind of wondering, yeah, whether there's a kind of a hidden, I, I think there's a lot of symbolic import to these names, especially in that novel, but maybe just in general, uh, you got to. My aunt is called Zhang Xia. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. Um, f- funnily enough, actually, Ivan, when you were mentioning that they're like almost like password generated, for some reason, this made me think of, did you ever see the, um, it's a Korean film by the director Park Chan-wook, Old Boy. It was like popular about like, I think it came out about 15 years ago, something like that. Oh, it's still popular. Yeah, isn't it? I yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, he's a very popular director, right? Yeah. But like, yeah. Um, there's a scene in that where the main character, Odesu, who's been like very severely wronged, he's trying to think of who it is that might have wronged him. And there's a scene where for about 15 seconds, he's just listing off Korean names, um, none of whom we've been introduced to. We have no idea who they are. Yeah. And they seem to be listed almost at random. And I watched the thing with the director and he said that it was like, previous directorial assistants that he'd had on previous films and he thought he'd like piss them off so much that they would like lock him in a room for 10 years you know <laughs> meanwhile odesu is oedipus is it not so it's kind of like an, an, an <gasps> oh uh, right god sorry. oh shit yeah oh, mind blown so it's like the uh the archetypo- archetypical kind of, there i was thinking i'd watched that film so many times i'd sucked out every hidden thing but no uh, um actually so can I ask you guys some things about your podcasts? Um, yeah, like when I described all the listeners I have, is that quite different from any of you guys or roughly the same? Or We have a lot of ACA, like kind of alt-ACA or like people who've done graduate studies but gotten out of it um, for whatever right. reason but still kind of want to keep a hand in it and they do that with our podcast. And also, uh, we've got a couple of we've got educators, teachers. Yeah. Um, one or two of them have asked for help. Syllabi, kind of, yeah. Syllabi, or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I've had a, yeah one or two people have been like, I gave your podcast link to my students. Thanks, and I was like, yeah, if it's there, use it. <laughs> that's all. That's a great feeling. You're like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm special. I had um, a first just this week. I had so I put my episodes on YouTube, and I got my first insane conspiracy theorist. Who, first yes. of all, gave a piece of useful feedback. She was like, um, "Please, could you? Uh, it would have been good if you guys had read some more quotes from the stories." Which is why I was doing that this time, funnily enough. But then she went on like a paragraph long, well, multi-paragraph long rant about a Jew- Jewish Chinese conspiracy to launch a pan-Asian super state and bring down America. And I was like, Honestly, Damn. that sounds brilliant. Wow. What, 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 that, that sounds like a Han Song novel, It's on actually. YouTube, you can read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did racist. You, did you leave, uh, that, did you leave that comment up on, your, on that me, episode? I'm going to copy and paste it to you guys in the chat, if you Please like. Do. Yeah. Okay. Golly, we haven't had any that. insane conspiracy theorists yet. I feel boring. Yeah. I feel like we really need to start putting the podcast episodes on YouTube. That's like, a great um, idea, yeah. YouTube is a rich source of crazy. Do, do y'all know how no. to do that? Um, Just make a video of the audio with a picture yeah. on top and then start on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. 
convert it to an MP4 really? with a picture, and boom. Yeah, there's a there's software yeah. online called uh, Alphonics that I use. A U P H O N I C S. Mm-hmm. That's been really good. I know there are a bunch of different ways to do it, but that that's one way at least. Um, I'm going to give you the link to the video because you'll be able to see my sardonic reply as well as the comment itself. You you, you clap back, do you? <laughs> oh yes. To all the middle-aged women on YouTube, wasting their time watching conspiracy videos. Marjorie Taylor Greene. D- D- Kevin, you know who that is, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, uh, she's also a, a, she's a listener of the the program. Okay. Okay. She really likes uh, <laughs> yeah. world she literature. Digs, digs I'm chamber. sure she's really into alternative canons. I didn't know. I, I I made that reference not knowing, realizing almost immediately that my non-American listener, or like the non-Americans here, might not know who that is. But uh, she's crazy, yeah, and she's yeah, in yeah. Congress now. <laughs> yeah. So that's the comment. I forgot she paragraphed it so well. I was remembering it as a big block. I, I mean, of text. she like uh, this is like a whiplash-inducing tangent. Yeah. I mean, she's using complete sentences, so more power to her. <laughs> Wow, and only a little bit of, uh, only a little bit of um, caps lock. I like. I particularly like the bit about how the existence of the Sassoons and Kadoris is evidence of this wow. grand, like Chinese Jewish conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we should read a paragraph for the listeners. Does anyone want to do that? Or I, I think you have to get the tone right. Who's got the most histrionic voice among us? Does anyone have good voice acting chops? I, <laughs> I can give it a try. Yeah. Okay. Rob, can you hold it there? Also, on another... Well, hang on. Where should I start? That doesn't seem like the best spot. I think read paragraph one. Let me read it. Go for it, Rob. I'm speaking... I'm speaking about the Belt and Road pan-Euro-Asian superstate that is building <laughs> deals between China, Russia, Arabia, Iran, and Israel. 150 other nations, although some resistance in Pakistan and slave debt in East Africa. Together, those five main players plot to bring America down particularly Zion's. Intel chip production in Israel, all backdoored. Cybersecurity companies posing as an American, etc. We are in big trouble. As Rothschild breaks up the West, electric grids in California, fires, extreme hacks in December. Three months ago, after the Defense Department announces need to have our own chip production facility, not buy Israeli or even Malaysian ADM chips so close to China. It keeps going, but it reads like beat poetry. There's no like, <laughs> there's no breaks or periods or syntax. It's just like da 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 da. It's like a rap song or something. I take back what I said about complete sentences. That was it's, a, the, mis- it's the new lyrics that we didn't start the fire. They're, they're, they're redoing it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Rob, we're gonna we're gonna use that actually as our intro and outro. I think uh, from now just, on, I'll I'll wrap that <laughs> over the top of whatever beat you throw down. That'll be our no, that'll be our intro music. Do the Christian death metal version of it. Oh, that would be great because no one would even have to know what the lyrics were. Lee and Rob. Um, that would be the name of our death metal band, Lee and Rob. It's the like Moors, the Moors, the, the least Moors. metal band name ever. How I was wondering, like on a on a death of Lee and Rob. On a different note, how you guys um, go about like choosing the different like stories and authors and stuff that you cover. Like, because yours is quite broad based, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. you, you, you like talk about a whole different variety of Chinese literature, right? Like, what's the, yeah, what kind of governs your approach? Me or those guys? Uh, I wanted, I started off not wanting to do 
I started off treating a certain type of book as my enemy, and that's the end. When you type in Chinese literature into Amazon, whatever Amazon gives you, I was like, no, let's let's break out the bubble and try and do stuff that um, is of value, but isn't like the default go-to for like a English language Western reader. Um, but that I've kind of got past that, and um, I'm now trying to do a little bit of everything. But yeah, I started off doing things I was interested in. I discovered. Uh, Wang Shuo, uh, like pizza literature, um, kind of the asshole young man stuff. And I thought that was pretty cool early on. But I realized that, you know, that that is, gets tiresome. So like I turned my eyes to genre fiction. Uh, so I did like a sci-fi season, a wuxia season. Um, and then other stuff has been like literary, more literary authors. Some of it's just me following my nose. Other times it's people suggesting stuff. And now it's, I guess the podcast has been going on long enough. I'm trying to be a bit more of a completionist. Um, so like I realized I've not, I've done almost nothing from Taiwan. So I'm going to do a Taiwan season. And people seem to like that. Um, people seem pretty excited about Taiwan season. So. Um, there's a Taiwan author called, uh, just very quickly, Zhang Dachun. He, um, he's got a wuxia uh, novel two years ago. Mm. I think it's good. New wuxia. That's cool. Because yeah, I've only yeah. really the only new wuxia I've done has been web fiction. I've done quite a lot of web fiction on the show, but I'd be keen to read, I don't know, not to sneer at web fiction too much, but I'd like to see what wuxia in a new book looks like because yeah. Jin Yong's stuff is new in English, but it's really not very new as a you know, creation. What about uh, Robin Lee? Because you guys have quite a spread as well. Do you just follow your noses or...? We started out by just picking stuff that we had read and taught in class. So it was really right. uh, both from love and laziness. Um, and <laughs> then we've just kind of, which is kind of describes our relationship as indeed, well, right, Rob? Indeed, yeah. Um, love and la- laziness. Uh, but the we've just kind of, <laughs> we've just kind of branched out. And, and so um, the, the whole like 100 years of Chinese literature thing has been just something we kind of came up with because we found that the best shows we have are antagonistic. It's where we disagree. And so we created a framework where we actually always disagree. Um, we're doing one on COG coming up at some I don't know, point. Summer in the summer. Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but we're trying to do, we're also going to do a women's literature uh series we we've just kind of come up and and we're starting to work on that and that so like now that we're doing more series it's more driven not by random stuff that we decide a day before that we're going to talk about but now we have to kind of like plan it out and and kind of thinking about larger goals Guys, for, yeah. i was um, just going to say for for clg which translation are you planning to use are you just going to work straight off the chinese we're using we're using anthony use trend Anthony, because I think I think Julia Lovell's oh, putting out a new one. Either she just has, or she will quite soon. Is she? she? Oh, okay, I, I might have that mistaken. Can anyone back that up? It's an it's an abridged translation, but yeah, it's a, a new one. Uh, if you want to, yeah. kinda... oh, there we go. Oh, nice. It's I'm doing it on the show, but the translator is a guest. Wait, wait hold up. This is my first time I ever read Shioji. Oh, cool, cool. Like the design. Hmm. So wait, you're getting you're getting Julia Lovell on then. Unless I scare um, her off before before it happens. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> uh, she did um, some a really great translation of uh, Lu Xun um, 
like some time back, like oh. I think like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I've, I've read that trend. I think I've actually taught that translation. I like it a lot. She also did, I think, one of Zhang Ailing too, right? Yeah, I've got that as well. <laughs> like the props. It's crazy to see him, <laughs> he disappears, him disappear. Yeah, fetches it from the ether. This is Julia Lovell's one, the penguin one. It's uh, Lost Caution and some other short stories. All right. Cool. I have a question for you, man. What, what is it like doing a podcast in Mandarin in terms of like your audience, but also distribution? Like, how does that work? Um, so, yeah. So initially I, I, I uploaded a few up to a few Chinese websites, but now, no, it's exclusively on my own WordPress um, website right. and then through Apple. Uh, my own, yeah, because they take your programs down. Um, the, I find a lot of tech people I think who have a habit of using Apple podcast app and they listen to my programs. Um, beyond that, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how to collect data. Um, right. I receive, you know, from time to time, the odd emails. Um, one, there's a really cute one coming from a Chinese. I think the lady taught Chinese in a Canadian university and she's now retired and lives, lives in a commune of uh, Vancouver somewhere. Um, yeah, and she's, she told me very specifically she listens to our podcast when she brushes her teeth. And that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, maybe she's your listener too. If so, hi. Yeah. Mm. Hello, teeth brushing women. Yeah. But the, it, it, the podcast is getting more popular, and, but censorship is a huge problem. Um, yeah. Mm. I put my show on Shimalaya and I had always worried something might get the show or a listen oh, sorry a guest in trouble but i never i took one thing out once i had a guest karen wang who works for the uh confucius institute in manchester and the intro like the show news covered some it was about a book about uh, xi jinping's dad oh, so probably no. nothing yeah i mean if the episode had been all about that and it was in the title trouble just as an item in the news, I don't know. <laughs> no. But I thought this lady works in the Confucius Institute. I don't want to get her sacked, so I just took out the intro for that one. But recently, um, the last one of the more recent books I did on the show was Beijing Coma. So yeah. I figured, well, I can't put this in the title of the episode. It's content, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. So what I did was I called the episode "The Land of Flesh." which is a literal translation of the original Chinese title. I left the description totally blank and thought the only way, unless they have a voice, an audio scanner that will pick up keywords in the audio, this should be okay. And it's still up, but I can't help but feel if my thing was, if it was a Mandarin language podcast, which was getting lots of listens yeah. or was getting attention, or if the censors could easily listen to it, it might be much more likely to be taken down. Like my show just disappeared overnight, the whole channel. Mm. I don't even know why. And I didn't even bother to ask, you know, like, what, what are you going to tell me? Yeah. It's a shame. Ifan, do you feel like doing this in Mandarin, uh, like if you wanted to go back to China, it would yeah. cause any issues? Like, do you have any family uh, back in China now still? Yeah, I do. And they, they are, they listen to my podcast for this reason, just to make sure that they can <laughs> stay alive. Most of my co-hosts are in China and um, I don't think we're big enough that way. Um, we don't talk directly about politics 
um, but then we don't shy away from it either. Um, so I tell my co-hosts, look, like you're just a, um, we're not published in on, our content is not on any Chinese server. Yeah. So yeah, so at least we have that. And if they block our website, then so be it. Here's a very stupid question. Um, why is it a Tudo Wenhua? Why is it a potato? I think it's a couch potato thing. Yeah, and then becomes culture <laughs> potato. Yeah. Yeah, that was a stupid question. <laughs> Angus, I was wondering the exact same thing. So thank you for asking it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I suppose when it's one of those things where it comes, the question comes out your mouth and it was like, oh, wait, I could have just worked out the answer if I use my brain. It yeah. is harder to work out in Chinese. So. Um, it's almost midnight here. Um, I've yeah, got a, you should probably, should probably a girlfriend. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, be keeping waiting for too long. But yeah, thank you all for coming on the show. Um, Thanks for keeping the ball, getting the ball rolling. This was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. And if y'all want to do an interview with us, uh, have us on your show, or if y'all want to come on to our show, we'd love it. That'd be fun. Yeah. Super fun. I've already, I've already got a couple of ideas. We'll probably be sending everybody some emails because there's some things Sweet. we could always use some of you on. Yeah. Like re soon. Mm. So be waiting for an email. I've got, I've got quite a lot of like my next like ten episodes are planned. So if, if wow. we're doing a collaboration, <laughs> yes. Well, it's not a good thing. Not a good thing. Twenty twenty two. Yes, twenty twenty five. Um. So if Rob. Uh, Mr. The two Moors, if you want to collaborate with me, probably better if I go on your show because I have a big backlog that I shouldn't be adding to. That works for us. Yeah. Right. And I might come to you guys for something else. Um, a friend oh, cool. and I, we are starting a bookshop in London uh, after the <gasps> lockdown. And we are trying to organize, we're trying to have book lists, recommendations by podcasts and YouTubers. I might reach out to you cool. guys. Is yeah. it going to be like a Chinese lit themed or just a general bookshop? No, general, but I think with, right. yeah, with me in it. So we probably have a heavy Chinese section. Oh man, yeah. you're, you're asking a bunch of literature people to give you book lists. This is like, <laughs> this is like nerd heaven. Yeah. Like, hmm, what 75 things should I tell you now? <laughs> uh, if I'm, where are you planning to open it? So um, it's um, just north of Oat Street. So somewhere in Oh, cool. Yeah. Have have you ever spoken to Vivian Ni from the Guanghua Bookshop, Yifan? No, this is in uh, in, is in, in Chinatown. Chinatown. Yeah, no, I haven't. Yeah, I I don't know if that would be of any use to you. She's not like she's I don't know. She's like two degrees of separation away from me because um, right. of my job. Um, yeah. So if I don't know, I could probably I'll, I'll pay 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 her a visit after the after that, lockdown. That's yeah. a better way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> um, she's I think she's pretty nice and she's. She does a lot of cross promotion stuff with publishers and stuff, so she probably awesome. Yeah, rising um, raises all boats or ships or whatever. Yeah, my um, my dad also runs a bookshop, so I might ask oh. him where he gets his gets all his books from as well. All right, like okay. how how he stocks it. So yeah, it's the book yeah. factory, I think. Yeah, the book factory. <laughs> I think so. Oh right. yeah, thanks. <laughs> got it now. <laughs> I was like, I was like, that's not the okay. bookshop. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of your dad's bookshop? Oh, it's called the Golden Hair. Uh, it's in Edinburgh. Oh, oh right. Oh, okay. Shit. Where about Edinburgh is, is this? Mm -hmm. uh, Stockbridge. Oh, okay. So, That's like, cool. just near the near the new town. <laughs> you, you'll kill me. I was doing a publishing degree in Edinburgh for a year, and that's the only indie bookshop I didn't visit. For <laughs> absolutely no reason. Outrageous! Outrageous! 
I, I lived well, in Edinburgh for five years. So cool. Oh, sweet. When, when was that? Eva? So 2000 to 2005, I did my degree there. Oh, oh cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I went there also, but I think a bit later, yeah. 2007 to 11. When I lived there, I had a very weird abode. It was a cheap flat, if you can believe it, like almost at the top of the Royal Mile. And it was wow, in a, one of the, nice. a courtyard that, um, um, was it David Hume? Yeah, I think, yeah, David Hume had lived there. Uh, right next to the Writers Museum, but it was oh, shit cool. flat, which is why it was affordable. It was a very weird very experience nice. leaving that flat. Well, if it was like a, like a Tuesday at the right time of year, you'd be American, Chinese, international tourists yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Well, look, Angus, when lockdown lifts, you um, you'll have no excuse not to go back and. <laughs> we should organize the fringe live <laughs> live show. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, let's do it. Yeah. I'll be in France in the summer. I can come over. Yeah, it's, it's Maybe, that's yeah. just a short hop away, really. Yeah, I know. All right, I am actually gonna. I am actually gonna. Yep. Come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's let you get to bed. Thank you all again. Thank you, Angus. All right, cheers, everyone. Ciao. Okay, we have reached the end of the show. Another fantastic crossover, if I do say so myself. Thank you so much to Yifan from Culture Potato, to Do Wenhua. Thank you to Kevin and William, aka Willie, from Rereading the Stone. And thank you to the Moore Brothers uh, from the Chinese Literature Podcast. I was actually, I never mentioned them actually, but I was listening to that show, I believe, briefly before I set up uh, this one. So it was, you know. I mean, I suppose this has happened many times in the show where I meet a translator or an author, or a translator I've read about, or an author who I've read, and my mind is slightly blown, but it kind of happened again today, so it's pretty cool. I mean, to be fair, it happened on the last Mega Crossover as well. It's great, it just keeps happening. So, listeners, if you want to support this show, here's some ways you can do it. Patreon is a good way. Um, There are dozens and dozens of bonus episodes up there now, mostly solo episodes where I'm talking about a book I'm either going to do on the show, one I've done on the show and it's further thoughts, or just something that will never be covered on the show, perhaps because it's not fiction or it's not translated. So if yeah, if you want more, just go to Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash trichific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Um, if you use that same username, T-R-C-H-F-I-C, Trichific, in Instagram, you'll get the show's Instagram account, which is a good way to stay up to date, and also get a glimpse into what I'm doing in the uh, the old Instagram stories. I'll like show little videos of the book I'm reading and stuff. Um, it's a good way to get in touch, too, if you want to give any feedback about the show, either if there was something you really liked, or, of course, if I got something wrong, or if my guests got something that you'd like to um, bounce back on, then that's a fun way to do that. So's Twitter. So my uh, the show's Twitter is just my own one at Angus Likes Words. That's a good place to follow and get in touch should you so wish. If you'd like to get in touch more holistically with not just me but other fans of the show, uh, we have a Discord and uh, invite link for that is in the show notes. We are accumulating more and more members. Um, no one's really talking there. Um, I'm wondering, I, I don't want to be like the guy who organizes all the fun. I'm wondering if I should like throw in discussion topics or something, or if anyone else wants to, um, that's good because then I'm not sort of doing it like the grand conversation controller, which is really not what I want to be. Another place where you can find stuff I do for the show 
it's not really, this one's a bit, I'm just trying to show off here, but I, I animate uh, the episodes as videos for YouTube. So basically you can consume the episode and for every uh, speaker, there'll be a little bar, little, um, a spectrogram bar or whatever. Quite proud of that. And I'll be making one for this episode. Although because of the way we recorded, Rob and Lee will be sharing a bar. <laughs> But that's fine. I kind of imagine them as like a Siamese twin with two heads. Um, so in some ways it's appropriate, at least according to my um, slightly disturbed imagination. Anyway, that that is all the plugs. So the last thing I'll suggest you do is the best thing you can do for the show, which is to spread the word. So tell friends, uh, family, teachers, fellow book uh, what, readers, fellow book fans, literature enthusiasts. Oh, the guy with the um, the guy trimming hedges outside my window has started again. Um, you can probably hear him. So um, I, I will insist above the racket he's created. Oh, he stopped. Bloody hell! Just when I was um, about to riff on it. Anyway, yes, please do tell your flirtatious tram passenger, tell your robot foxtrot partner, tell your deadly kung fu opponent, and all of his twenty concubines, and. Also, please do tell your chicken nugget, because you never know, it might just be concealing a cosmic observer. So until like, until next time, dear listeners, Zai Jian. <laughs>